Father, if we ever do doubt your love for us, Lord, help us to look to the cross because your word says that there is where you demonstrated your love. Romans 5 says that God demonstrated his love in this and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the Gospel of John says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So, Lord, we thank you that your love is not merely a, a sentimental love, but it's a love that was shown by action and the greatest act that, that, that ever um, occurred, the laying down of your son's life for us. So, Lord, let us not ever doubt your love for us. And if we do, help us to go to the cross where we can see where you, you put your love on display. And, and Lord, we pray you'd prepare our hearts for the celebration of the Lord's Supper where, where we will see that um, in the symbols of, of the broken bread and the, the, the juice, Lord. We will see in that the symbols of your love for us. And Lord, as we come to your word, may you feed us, may you feed our souls, may you strengthen our faith in you, may you bring us to faith in you if we don't know you yet. Lord, may it be a profitable time. May your spirit work through your word. Uh, the words of a man cannot do anything for your people, so may it be your word that shines through and accomplishes what only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, let's open up to Galatians chapter 2. We're looking at verses 11 through 14 this morning. Galatians 2, 11 through 14. And I will read that for us. Galatians 2, verse 11. Paul writes, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? The more important something is to you, the less willing you are to compromise on it. When you become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, in some ways you become more willing to compromise. You've gained the eternal perspective that this life is not all that there is, and therefore many things do not matter to you now as much as they did before you knew the Lord. For example, if my family is going out to eat, and I desire Chinese food because of its marvelous health benefits, chicken and oil to lubricate the, bo the, the, the bones and the joints. But my wife says she wants pizza. Because I have an eternal perspective, if I'm filled with the Spirit, I will be willing to compromise. I will give up my desire for Chinese food to fulfill her desire for pizza. In the light of eternity, it doesn't matter whether we go eat Chinese or pizza. But there are other ways in which, when you become a believer in Christ, you become less willing 
even totally unwilling to compromise. That is because when you gained an eternal perspective, certain things became infinitely more important to you than they were before you came to know the Lord. For example, maybe before you you knew Christ, you could care less about what church you attended, be it a faithful Protestant church, a dead liberal church, a Roman Catholic church, or a Kingdom Hall Jehovah's Witness church. It was easy then for you to compromise about that because you cared nothing for the gospel. But now that you know Christ, you are only willing to go to a church where the gospel is faithfully proclaimed. And that means dead liberal churches, Roman Catholic churches, and kingdom halls are no longer an option for you. In Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14, we see Paul unwilling to compromise on something. And that something is the gospel. Here in this passage, we see Paul share yet another event from his life that establishes his independence from the other apostles. He's proving yet again that he was not commissioned by the other apostles. He did not get his gospel from them and somehow mess it up when he was teaching the Galatians. No, he was commissioned directly by the Lord Jesus, just like the other apostles were. And he was given the gospel directly from the Lord Jesus, just like the apostles were. If he hadn't been directly commissioned by Christ, if he was just a a guy who was under the authority of the other apostles, he never would have done what we see him doing here in in chapter 2, 11 through 14, standing against Peter. We would would never see him do that if he was under them rather than on their level and under Christ. In this passage, we're going to see that the gospel has priority over personalities. It has priority over even unity. It has priority over offices, even the office of apostle. And it has priority over every other social pressure that you could possibly think of. We see here that, yeah, we can compromise on many things, but the gospel must never be one of those things. So we're going to move through these verses kind of in four steps. We're going to just make four acts as we go through these four verses. And the first thing we see is kind of an overview of this whole scene. We see a conflict happen. That's what we see in verse 11. Uh, In this verse, most of your English translations begin with the word but, and that's reflecting the Greek text. And, And it's indicating there's a contrast here. There's a contrast here with what went before. What did we observe between Paul and the Jerusalem apostles in their private meeting in verses 1 through 10? Do you remember from last week? What did we see going on between Paul and these apostles? We saw great unity, right? Unity on the gospel. There, there, there we saw those three apostles that, Peter, that Paul met with. They, they extended to Paul the right hand of fellowship. They said, yes, that's the gospel that we preach God gave the same gospel to you. We are one on this. But now, something changes dramatically. Look at verse 11. Paul says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. So we go from the right hand of fellowship being extended to a face-to-face opposition happen. We go from peace 
to conflict. Now, who's Cephas? Well, Cephas, that's Simon Peter's Aramaic name. Aramaic was the common language of the Jews living in Israel during New Testament times. It's the language that Jesus and his 12 disciples would have most commonly spoken with each other. And the name Cephas, it means rock in Aramaic, just like Peter means that in Greek. It's the name that Jesus gave to Simon. Turn with me to John chapter 1. We see this, this name change first take place. John chapter 1, verse 42, we, we see Andrew meeting Jesus, and then he goes and finds his brother Simon and introduces Simon to Jesus. Verse 42, he, Andrew, brought him, Simon, to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated in Greek, Peter. So that's who this is. This is Simon Peter. That's who Cephas is. Now, here in Galatians 2, Paul is relating to these Galatian churches a visit that Simon Peter made to the church in Antioch. And it was probably sometime following that private meeting that Paul had with those few apostles. We read about that in the first 10 verses. And it probably took place before that big Jerusalem council that we read about in Acts 15. It's somewhere between those two events. Now Antioch, that was one of the first places that the gospel spread to after it had first been proclaimed in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. The church in Antioch was the church in which Paul and Barnabas spent much of their time ministering and shepherding. It was the church that had sent both of them, Paul and Barnabas, out on that first missionary journey. And that was the journey where Paul and Barnabas traveled throughout the Galatian province and planted the very churches that Paul is writing to. Antioch was that sending church. And during Peter's visit to Antioch, we're told here that Paul found it necessary to oppose Peter to his face. Now, that doesn't mean that, like a drill sergeant, Paul headbutted Peter and was nose to nose with his veins sticking out of his neck and spittle flying into Peter's face. No, it just means that Paul confronted Peter directly and personally. He didn't go write a letter. No, he, he went and he talked to Peter about what was going on. Why did Paul do this? Why did he oppose Peter, especially in light of the great unity that they had experienced as we saw in the first 10 verses? Well, he tells us why in verse 11. I opposed him to his face because, why? He stood condemned. Some translations use softer language here by translating it as something like he had done wrong or he was to be blamed. But the stronger language of, of condemnation seems warranted by what we read here. The situation, as we're going to see, it could not be more serious. This was not a little problem. This was a big problem. Peter had begun to follow a course that if he was not stopped, if he did not repent, it would land him outside of Christ and it would tear the church apart. We're going to see that Peter had begun to compromise with the gospel and he was leading others to compromise with the gospel 
And that is a massive problem because the only way that we're free from condemnation, free from the wrath of God against our sins, is if we are in Christ, if we are believing in him as he is declared in the gospel. Look at me, or look with me at Romans 8, verse 1. Romans 8, verse 1. Paul there, he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. To step outside of Christ, to step away from the gospel, is to do what? Is to step back under condemnation. Now go with me to Luke chapter 17, where we see our Lord give some very strong words of judgment to anyone who would lead others into error, which is exactly what Peter was doing. Luke 17. Starting in verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, and Peter would have been standing right there, listening to this, he said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones, believers, to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Peter is being a stumbling block to the believers here. He is leading them away from the gospel. And Paul is seeing his brother stumble in this way and be that stumbling block. And he moves to obey what Jesus said in verse 3. If you see your brother sin, rebuke him. That is exactly what Paul is going to do. Now, we might think that unity would say, just ignore what you see. Just let Peter go. Don't, it's not a big issue. Don't cause uh, the boat to rock. Just let it go. But we must never overlook someone's sin for the sake of unity, especially a sin so grievous as compromising the gospel and stumbling others. There are sins to overlook. It's a glory to a man to overlook a fault, but this is not one of those. True Christian unity will never be gained by doing that. It will only be destroyed by doing that. Letting someone fall away simply to avoid conflict is just about the most selfish thing that you or I could possibly do. Paul is on a rescue mission for Peter. He's on a rescue mission for the church to keep them from straying from the gospel. So that's the conflict. That's the conflict. In verse 12, we get the context of this conflict. Look at verse 12. Paul explains. He says, For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. We're told here that Peter used to eat with the believing Gentiles in the church at Antioch. And this probably means that he sat with them during meals. Probably means he ate the same food that they ate, even food that had been prohibited by the law of Moses. If pork was on the menu, he would have ate it with them. And it probably also means that he celebrated the Lord's Supper with them as well. Now, why was Peter 
a careful Jew all his life, willing to do that? Well, it's because of what God had shown him back in Acts 10. So let's go back there, Acts 10. In that chapter, we see God orchestrating events in such a way that Peter would bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And the Gentile Cornelius, in this chapter, he was instructed by an angel to send for Peter. So Cornelius sent some of his men to go get Peter and bring him back. And to prepare Peter for that meeting, God revealed a truth to him in a vision. Look at chapter 10, verse 9. It says, On the next day, as they, the men that Cornelius had sent, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. And this, this is mortifying to Peter. He says, verse 14, Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, in this, this vision, God was telling Peter, listen, the, the foods that, that the law of Moses said were not clean, I'm saying they are now. You can eat those things. But this vision didn't only apply to the type of food God was allowing his people to eat. It also applied to the type of people that God was going to bring to faith in Christ. God was going to save not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. And Peter, he comes to that conclusion. Look at verse 28 of chapter 10. He said to them, you yourselves know, this is when he's standing in Cornelius' house, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. So that's the basis for why when, when Peter comes to Antioch, he's willing to eat with the Gentiles and to fellowship with them. It's the gospel that has led Peter to behave in that way. But we see something happen in Antioch. Peter begins to change his behavior. Why does he do that? Well, back in Galatians 2, verse 12, we're told why. First of all, he does it in response to who coming? What does it say? Men from James, and that's James, the Lord's brother, who was in Jerusalem. Now, we're not told what relationship these men had with James. Did James send these men? If he sent them, why did he send them? When they came, what did they say that, that uh, resulted in this response from Peter? We just can't say for sure. Paul doesn't tell us. But Paul does give us another reason for why Peter changed his behavior. Look again at verse 12. End of that verse. He changed his behavior because he was fearing someone. He was fearing the party of the circumcision. More literally, it says he was fearing those of the circumcision. Who are these people? 
Well, they're not necessarily the same group as the group that came from James. We don't know if they were or not. These ones that Peter was afraid of, we know they were Jews. That's what of the circumcision means. But what kind of Jews were they? Were they believing Jews from the church at Jerusalem? Were they the false brothers that Paul talked about earlier in this chapter? Remember those guys who snuck into that private meeting that Paul had with the apostles? Or were they unbelieving Jews who would be violently angry if they heard that Peter, a Jew, was defiling himself with Gentile food and Gentile company? And they would do violence upon the Jerusalem church if they saw these believing Jews behaving in in like manner. We just can't say for sure who these men of the circumcision were that Peter was so afraid of. What we do know for sure is what Peter did once the fear of man gripped his heart. What did he do? He began to withdraw and hold himself aloof from the Gentile believers in Antioch. In other words, he began to act like he and the Gentile believers were no longer one in Christ. He began to act like the Gentile believers were still unclean. After Peter, think back to Acts 10, after Peter had visited Cornelius and given him the gospel, when he got back from there, what happened when he rejoined the Jerusalem church? The Jewish believers there accused him. They said, Peter, you went to a Gentile's house. You're violating the law. Why did you do that? How did Peter explain? Well, in Acts 11, he responded by telling them that that God had done something amazing, that, that God had saved these people. And it was apparent because God had baptized these people with the Spirit. And Peter's conclusion in Acts 11, verse 17 was, Who was I? that I could stand in God's way. God is saving these people. That's why I I commingled with a, a Gentile family. But here in Galatians 2, Peter is standing in God's way. He forgot the lesson he learned. He compromised on what he had learned from God. Later on in the book of Acts, chapter 15, we'll see in verses, or you, you will see there if you read that chapter, chapter 15, Verses 8 and 9, Peter would testify at the Jerusalem council. And he would testify specifically about that first day he brought the gospel to Cornelius. And he would say there this. He says, God, who knows the heart, testified to those Gentiles, Cornelius and his family, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And God made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. But here in Galatians 2, what is Peter suggesting and what is he doing? He is making distinctions between himself and the Gentile believers. He is acting like they were not cleansed by faith. Apparently, those that Peter was afraid of, they were upset about the believing Jews' violation of Judaism's prohibition of eating certain foods and keeping certain company. So in defiance of everything God showed him in those visions that he received on that house roof, he is here choosing to satisfy men rather than God. The fear of man can lead you to do horrible things. It can lead you to do great harm to your own soul. Peter stood condemned 
by his actions. And the lesson there for you and me is don't ever compromise for the, for the fear of men. Don't do that. So that's the context of this conflict. In verse 13, we find out the consequences of Peter's compromise. Sin never just stays with you. It always affects others around you. Peter did not only imperil himself by his actions, he brought great danger to the whole church as well. In James, in his letter, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Leaders incur a stricter judgment. And what we see in Peter in Galatians 2 is partly why it is the case that leaders, teachers, face a stricter judgment. It's because when a leader falls, he often brings about the fall of many who were following him. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. That aspect of leadership is, is why, Peter, why Paul says what he says to Timothy. Look at 1 Timothy 4 and verse 16. He says, pay, a cl pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. In other words, keep an eye on how you're behaving and what you're saying to others. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for who? For those who hear you. For those who hear you. Peter was not keeping a close eye on himself here. And he was endangering those around him. Let's look at, let's look at uh, Galatians 2, verse 13. Let me read it for us. Again, this is the consequences of Peter's actions. It says, The rest of the Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Paul here tells us that what Peter did and what the others did was hypocrisy. It was hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? It's, it's putting on a public face that doesn't match who you are on the inside, right? Peter here was playing a part. He was like, like he was in a play, wearing a mask. He was playing a part in order to satisfy those he was afraid of. Now, the fact that Paul calls this hypocrisy tells us that that how Peter was acting, that isn't really what he believed. It's not that his belief in the gospel changed. It's that his actions no longer were matching up with what he was believing. That's what the problem was. It's not that he abandoned his understanding of what the gospel was. It's that he was acting in a way that was in contrast with that. And when the men from James arrived... Because Peter was afraid of those of the circumcision, he put that mask on his face. He hid what he really believed so that he wouldn't get in trouble. And the other Jewish believers in Antioch, this, they, they observed this in Peter. And as a result, what did they do? They followed his lead. They got their masks and they put it over their faces just like he did. And the last one to fall was who? Barnabas, that's right. Eventually, even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. And you can almost hear the pain in Paul's heart 
as he writes that. He says, even Barnabas was carried away. Who was Barnabas to Paul? He was Paul's faithful partner in ministry. Like Paul, Barnabas had been sent by God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles on that first missionary journey of Paul's. The Galatian churches, the the ones to whom Paul is writing, they were planted by Paul and Barnabas together. Paul and Barnabas had been through so much together for the sake of the Gentiles. And yet here is Barnabas putting a mask on his face with the other Jewish believers and stiff-arming the very Gentiles he had brought the gospel to, the very ones he had risked life and limb to bring the gospel to. And here he is stiff-arming them from fellowshipping with him. It was very disturbing to Paul, no doubt. One thing that's disturbing to me as a father is the way my sons learn from me. There are little mannerisms, certain things they say, certain things about the way they say it, that I know they learned that from me. There's nobody else who is a goofball enough to act like that or say that or say it like that. And yet I never verbally instructed them to do those things. I never told them, hey, talk like this or, or talk in this way. And yet they picked that up from me. How did they learn to do that? They learned it by watching me, by being around me. They learned from my example. And that tells me that I'm teaching my sons, and I am leading my sons, even when I'm not consciously doing so. They're following me, even when I'm not aware of it, even when I would not desire them to. If I'm not careful, my sins will become their sins just like Peter's sin became the sins of those who were watching him. And that that tendency to learn from and adopt the examples of others, it doesn't stop once you hit 18 or once you hit 50. You continue to have that tendency to assimilate the beliefs of others and the behaviors of others and the speech of others. It's just human nature. And we don't only follow the examples of those who are leading us. We also follow the examples of those who are walking beside us. And we also follow the examples of those who are following us. Don't we see that with Barnabas? Who was Barnabas in the Antioch church? He was one of the leaders of that church. And yet, it wasn't only Peter's example that carried him away. Look at verse 13 again. Whose hypocrisy was he carried away by? Does it say Peter's? It says their, their hypocrisy. It was everybody. Those he was under, Peter, and those he was over in the church. So you see, we are all leading by example. Whether you're the pastor or the church member, whether you're the parent or the child, whether you're the husband or the wife, or whatever other relationship you can think of, no matter what your role in that relationship is, you are leading by example. And the question is, what kind of example are you giving to those around you? Are you living like Jesus? Are you showing them what it looks like to trust in him and to follow him? Because they are watching you, and they are learning from you, and they are imitating you, even if you don't think they are. Are you showing them what it looks like to repent and to love others? Are you showing them 
what it looks like to never compromise on the gospel. If you're not, you're doing great damage to their souls, just like Peter did to those around him. But if you are, like we're going to see Paul do, there's no greater service you could render to those around you than giving them a model of Jesus Christ. So that's the consequences of of Peter's hypocrisy. Now let's go to the actual confrontation when Paul opposes Peter to his face. It seemed like every single Jew in the Antioch church had become actors in a play as they followed Peter's lead, except for one person. Look at verse 14. Paul says, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? When Paul saw what was going on, he did not compromise. He confronted. He did not fold under the pressure. He fought for the, the truth. He says that the Jewish believers were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. That Greek word for being straightforward, it's orthopedeo. Think of orthopedist. What does an orthopedist do? They help you walk straight, right? Help you walk upright, help you walk and move normally. Well, these Jewish believers, they were not walking straight as it related to the gospel. They had spiritual scoliosis, if you will. Now, if you, if you read uh, Romans 14 and Romans 15 or 1 Corinthians 9, you'll see that Paul is very tolerant, very forbearing about certain differences, secondary issues that are not so important. But when it comes to the truth of the gospel, Paul was like flint. He did not move one inch. He did not give in for a moment or for a little bit. We saw that back in the earlier verses of this chapter, didn't we? Look back at chapter 2, verse 4. This is when Paul was in that private meeting with the other apostles and some false brothers came in. Verse 4, Paul says, But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even a moment, so that the truth of the gospel, there's that same phrase, the truth of the gospel would remain with you. It's the same here in this confrontation with Peter. Paul saw they were not being straightforward about what? The truth of the gospel. And he was not going to compromise for even a moment. And so he acted. And how did he act? He ripped off Peter's mask in front of everybody. Isn't that what he does in verse 14? What does he say to Peter in front of everybody? He says, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews. What had Peter started, started doing when the men from James came along? He had started withdrawing and separating himself from the Gentile believers. He was afraid of being seen fellowshipping with the Gentiles. And so he started to act like that's not what he was doing. And Paul outed him in front of everybody. 
including the men from James. Paul was like that annoying little brother. Think of you in school, you have a friend to come and spend the night, and you want to act all cool, and so you, you put your gym shorts on to go to sleep with, and, and your little brother comes and says, hey, why aren't you wearing your Lion King pajamas tonight? You know, and just, you get beat, beat red over him outing you in front of everybody. Paul just outed Peter, said, you live like a Gentile, and now you're acting like a Jew. And he says that right in front of the men from James. Paul continues, he says, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? It's here that we discover what was at stake. It might not seem like a big deal. It's like a little high school squabble. Oh, I'm not going to sit with you. I'm going to sit with the cool kids over here. But no, it's way more serious than that. Peter, by his actions, was compelling the Gentiles to live like Jews. How was he doing that? Well, by withdrawing himself, Peter was implying that before the Gentiles could enjoy fellowship with him and the other Jews, they needed to what? They needed to become Jewish. As Gentiles, he was implying, as Gentiles, they were not ceremonially clean enough to eat with him. Faith in Christ had not cleansed them enough. They needed to do the work of becoming Jews before they could enjoy being a part of the people of God. And again, that's not what Peter believed, but that is what his actions were communicating. Before, during Paul's private meeting with him and James and John in the first ten verses of this chapter, Peter refused to compel who to be circumcised. Do you remember? When the false brothers snuck in and they brought up the issue of circumcision, Peter and James and John, did any of them compel Titus? Remember, that's who that was? Titus, who was a Gentile, did they compel him to be circumcised? No, they didn't. But Paul says here in verse 15 that Peter, by his actions, is compelling the Gentiles to live like Jews. He's doing now what he refused to do earlier. And again, Peter doesn't realize that's what he's doing, but that is what he's doing. And Paul is seeking to bring Peter to that realization through his rebuke. This, this episode is shocking to us because when we think of the apostles, we kind of think that they were kind of floating on air, you know, that, that every day was, they were getting every, you know, every moment they were getting downloads from heaven and that they would never stumble, never be confused, never sin. Certainly when they wrote the scriptures, God kept them from all error. The Holy Spirit carried them along as they wrote down the books of the Bible that we have today so that what we have here is inerrant. But that doesn't mean that every, when they woke up on Monday that they were kept from all confusion and all sin and all problems. They had to live by faith, not by sight, just like us. They wrestled with sin, just like us. They had to put into practice what they wrote, just like us. And if you doubt that, go read Paul's testimony in Romans chapter 7. Peter was a man, just like you and me. But Peter was an apostle. Peter was one who walked on water. He was one who walked with Jesus for three years. He was one who communed with the resurrected Christ. 
He was someone God used to heal the sick and to preach the gospel so that thousands were saved. He was someone that God used to write Holy Scripture. Church tradition says that he loved Jesus so much that he was crucified upside down because he felt himself unworthy to be crucified upright like his Lord was. And did you know that when we get to heaven and we walk the streets of gold in the New Jerusalem, according to Revelation 21 and verse 14, when we walk by one of the 12 foundation stones of that immortal city, whose name is going to be inscribed there? Peter's name. If this Peter needed a brother in Christ to help him cling to the gospel, who am I and who are you to think you don't? We all need the brothers and sisters in Christ that God has brought around us to help us stay true to the gospel. When God saves someone, he keeps them, and he causes them to persevere to the very end. But one of the means he uses in causing believers to persevere in the faith to the very end is the rebukes of brothers and sisters. And so when we cut ourselves off from the life of the church, we are cutting ourselves off from one of the very means God uses to cause us to persevere in our faith. Now look at it from the other side. That's looking at it from the, the perspective of being rebuked, of receiving rebuke. Are we opening ourselves up to that? Are we inviting of that from others? Now look at it from the other perspective, the one bringing the rebuke. Paul here, did you notice? He was a lone voice. No one else was standing up for the truth of the gospel. If Paul shrunk back, if he followed everybody else, if he went with the flow, if he shrunk back from calling attention to this, the Antioch church would have crumbled. Your one voice in the church is very important, even if it's the only voice. Sometimes when brothers and sisters stumble into sin, they can't see it. It's blinding. They need help sometimes to see where they've strayed from the truth of the gospel. And one voice, your one voice, can mean the difference between a thriving church and a crumbling church. The good news that Jesus died for sinners and rose from the dead, where was that on Paul's list of priorities? Right at the top, wasn't it? The good news of Christ was so valuable to him that he was not willing to compromise it for anything or anyone. And when you come to believe that you are a sinner who deserves the wrath of God, and when you come to believe that Jesus paid the death penalty on the cross for sinners like you, and when you come to believe that Jesus rose from the dead to bring eternal life to whoever calls on his name, that gospel becomes everything to you as well. And so the question I want to end with is this. Is the gospel that to you? Or is it still some cheap token that you're willing to throw away or twist or compromise in order to please men? This world is passing away. So seek the pleasure of God. Seek the eternal world to come where Christ is king. Repent of your sins. Abandon your efforts to save yourself. And trust in Christ alone to save you and rule you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel and we're about to celebrate that gospel by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. 
Lord, grow us in our faith so that the gospel becomes everything to us, that Christ becomes everything to us, and that we become unwilling to compromise on that gospel. And yet, with things that that don't really matter, we become the most gentle, yielding people anybody knows. But when it comes to the gospel, may we be the most unyielding people anybody knows because of how important it is. Lord, prepare our hearts to celebrate your supper together in Jesus' name. Amen.